And that's okay. I would... All right, saints. Well, it's obviously Father's Day. This morning is June 15th. It's Sunday morning. Uh, you can see from the pastor's corner of your bulletin that our message this morning is called G-Harmony. G-Harmony. You can see that my uh, corny pastor humor knows no bounds. Uh, I have no shame in uh, sermon names. E-Harmony is one of those things that they advertise on TV that is probably a wonderful, wonderful service. Having been married since I was born again at 18... Uh, you know, I read the word, it was pretty clear to me, and I went, hmm, I need to get married. And uh went and asked Fred Hall, who's in this church today, sir, may I ask for your daughter's hand in marriage? And when he said, I would be proud to have you as my son, I paused for a minute and said, did you understand the question? <laughs> I had no job, uh, was a high school student, and uh, did not have a long, illustrious uh, career in Christianity. Uh, weeks before, I'd been involved in violent activities and those things, but something changed in me. And I was radically born again. My life has never been the same. And I may not have made as good a husband to Jennifer as Jennifer has made a good wife, but God has made it work. And the strength of our lives has been that relationship. It has absolutely carried us. And that's because it's based on a relationship with Jesus. I say all that to say e-harmony is one of those things that I don't relate to so well because I've never had to be a single adult longing for a relationship, feeling somewhat unfulfilled as if I were uncompleted without the other half of me out there somewhere. I can empathize with that. It's obviously a huge need in our country or there wouldn't be such phenomenal success with singles dating sites. Having said that, the man's voice on the commercial and his sales pitch annoys me to no end. And uh, there may be nothing wrong with it, and I, please, I, I don't mean to have a critical spirit, but 29 dimensions of compatibility and those things, as I began to think about that this morning, and you can see almost every week I mention to you some kind of infomercial. When I watch TV, I don't remember what I watched other than those crazy commercials. Last week was ShamWow. Yeah. Well... What I found, and the reason I titled this sermon the way that I did, is that people feel uh, a deep need to be connected. They feel a deep need to be in a serious, uh, compelling relationship. They feel that. And God made us that way. The biblical story is the account of God putting man on the earth. The biblical story is not the account of what happened here before man. That's why you don't see detailed chapters about the Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's why you don't see uh, detailed chapters about the geological age of the earth or any of those things. And I'm not here to argue theologically about a young earth or an older earth. I think it's patently obvious from the Word, and we can discuss it after church. But the Bible is the story of when God put man upon the earth, and what did He say about him? He said, this is in my image. These guys that I'm putting on the earth are in my image. Kind of like when... Two people meet and they say, wow, we got a lot in common. And instantly a friendship uh, arises and you feel camaraderie. God put man on the earth so that he would have a representative here that he had camaraderie with. And the first pictures that you see of man and God together are like two friends walking in the cool of the day in a garden, fellowshipping with one another. 
The Greek word for that gets overused sometimes, but it's koinonia. And it doesn't just mean two people who are acquaintances. It means people who are mutually edified by each other. And that's the sense in which man's relationship began with God. Something got in the way of that. And it was man's unwillingness to be obedient to the very few things that God asked of us. First things that God says to us are things like, you are free to eat from any tree. Isn't that a great diet? Except the one that is knowledge of good and evil. That doesn't sound terribly restrictive, does it? You're free to eat anything you want, but don't eat from this one. And you know how the story goes. One thing I'm supposed to do is the one thing that is the most enticing for us to do. When I was a little kid, I went to a buddy's house and he had a swimming pool. And his parents for the evening and said, do not get in the pool. I hadn't thought of getting in the pool when I said that. And now it began to move me and compel me and push me and entice me to the point where I didn't get all the way in, but I put a foot in and made the mistake of bragging about my parents got home. First time I got a beating from somebody that was not my parents. And that's good. That's good. That means that they cared. They cared what happened. They didn't want children in the pool unsupervised. Does that make sense? But what I learned looking back upon that is whatever it is we're asked not to do suddenly has an appeal, right? I was one time jogging in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I know that's hard for you to believe, but at times in my life I've been an avid jogger. On a sign. This was a ministry campus, and in an effort to... uh, cut down on some of the passionate sin that occurs in young people's lives around college age time, they thought that restriction in clothing might help. And you can see this certainly has the appearance of wisdom. We don't want you, you know, we don't meet as nudists for a reason, besides this gross, but for other reasons. And I looked down and in the mud was a sign mostly covered over and it said, no shorts. And yet that particular ministry was internationally renowned for some grand-scale sexual failures. And I thought, you know, laws are really not the answer. They have benefit. I mean, it is a good thing to teach young women and young men how to dress appropriately. But they lack no power, the Apostle Paul said, in restraining sensual indulgence. Even if there's a punishment. I've worked in places where they said, do not go to these kind of sites on your work computer. There would be a hundred salesmen on one floor, and every week somebody got fired. Every single week. And it amazed me. I would sit and watch, see, they know it's monitored. They know last week somebody got fired, and somebody still got fired that week. Mankind has an addiction to rebellion. When we talk about 29 dimensions of compatibility and e-harmony, what you do is you sit down and you fill out a long survey, right? Somebody else fills out a survey. You pray to God you've both told the truth so that it's based on something, right? Don't use words like voluptuous when scrawny should apply. You don't use words like intelligent when average might apply. You pray somebody's told the truth. What we find is there's a compatibility problem with God and man because God is intimately holy. He always tells the truth. I noticed something. It's Father's Day, and i got three kids, and I love them. I would fight through a brick wall for my children. But not one of the three was born holy. The ancient theory of tabula rasa could not be more wrong, and all you have to do is have children to prove that. 
Tabula rasa was the idea that we're born as blank slates, basically good, and then we're corrupted by our, our environment. As soon as my children were old enough to speak and I said something like, did you go to the bathroom in your pants? Uh Uh-uh. Are you sure you didn't go to the bathroom in your pants? Nope, didn't do it. They lie immediately. You put three Sundays out there for three kids, three ice cream Sundays, and one wants to eat all three, you know? My little daughter Abigail is as sweet as they come. But if her brothers tell her not to do something, even if they're in the right, she'll take a full-blown swing at their heads. Sin is bound up in our heart. We have compatibility problems with God. And as I began thinking about this creation story, God created mankind and man rebelled against Him and this caused a problem. The Bible is the story of the creation of man, the fall of man, and the restoration of man. Sometimes people have been critical and they say, well, the Bible's not a very scientific book. No, the Bible is a book that contains a great amount of scientific detail. But it is not a book about science. It is a book that in its heart, in the central theme, its thesis is mankind made to be compatible with God falls away from God and then God's plan to restore man. That's why we start in a garden and we finish in Revelation in a garden. That's why we start with man with God and see a separation, but we end with God and man and no separation. This is the biblical story. And when you begin to look at how God causes this to come about, He chooses special people that He wants to make a light, a revelation to the people around them, to wake others up. And he chose Noah in his generation, and Noah listened to him, but the rest of the world didn't. And whoever listened to Noah received favor from God. Whoever refused to listen to Noah didn't receive favor. Sometimes people think of God as wrathful and vengeful. Have you ever had to wait ten minutes in a McDonald's line? Just ten minutes? It seems like an eternity now. Or is there anybody in here still on dial-up internet? Yeah, after you've been on cable internet, it is impossible. It's not within your human capability to go back to dial-up. God waits thousands of years to see if nations will turn around. The Bible, the Old Testament, especially the Older Testament story, is this over and over and over. And God picks a special people group, a special person, and says, look, this is how our relationship's supposed to be. This is not perfect, you and I, but this is what I want you to teach the nation." He did this with Noah. He did it with Abraham. He did it with the nation of Israel. But I want you to understand something. It's what I put in the pastor's corner. The Holy Scriptures contain 261 direct references to God as our Father. However, when you look carefully at the context of each Scripture, it's obvious that a monumental change in man's relationship to God occurred in the ministry of Yeshua. The Tanakh, the 39 books of the Older Testament, only refer to God as Father nine times. Isn't that unusual? 39 books in the Older Testament, 27 in the New. The longest books in the Bible in the Older Testament, and only nine references to God as Father. Of those nine occurrences, seven are spoken of as futuristic. The remaining two are used in the generic sense that have to do with Father like Creator, not Father as in Daddy. I think everybody in our culture today of so many marriages and divorces and procreation without parenthood understands the difference between somebody who simply makes a baby and somebody who raises a baby. 
In my life, I have very clear examples of that, and I'm fortunate. A man raised me that was not my biological father. Love him, and he's watching now. Thank you, Dad. One of the first pictures of Jesus I ever saw. I was not his, and yet he loved me like I was. When comparing the 27 books of the Newer Testament to the Older, it's dramatic. 252 times the Newer Testament records the word Father in the sense of personal relationship, and that doesn't include a handful where it's not just Father, it's Daddy, Papa, the most intimate way that a Jewish person could speak of God. It's my belief that as we study today and as we look, what we will see is that when mankind lost that dimension of compatibility with God, we felt estranged. We felt disconnected. We no longer saw God as Father, but we saw God as the vengeful enforcer. We saw God as the old guy with the white beard and the stick ready to hit us. And for many people, this has not changed now. How many people do you know that do not want to go to church simply because their life is not perfect? Alright? Well, I'll get right and then I'll go to church. All you've got to do is go to church and it becomes painfully evident nobody's life is perfect. Which is the other criticism you hear. I'm not going to church, it's full of hypocrites. Yeah, and there'll be one more hypocrite in it when you come. You know? You, birds of a feather, y'all will all flock together. We're all tragically flawed. And yet, inside of us is a deep, burning, compelling sense to need to be connected. Because that's how God designed us. We want to connect. This is why you can go see a rock con- You probably wouldn't, but some people would go see a rock concert. I happen to love the 80s. I don't know why. I watch those VH1 anthems of all the 80s songs. and I have a 20-year statue of limitation on music. If it was dirty 20 years ago to me, now it's cute. You know, what once seemed um, risque, now it's just cute. you ever listen to 60s music and you have no idea what the innuendo is anymore? <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful blessing. A man could be singing about adultery, but to you he's just singing about a new dress. You know, it's, it's great. Uh, to the pure, all things are pure. I'm not encouraging you to go delve into things that are bad. But I'm trying to point to something that we see in our lives everywhere. Maybe I shouldn't have picked rock concert. We could have picked football game. But in any case, when you look in the stadium, people are doing things like the wave, right? And you watch it go all the way around, you go, wow! And there is this feeling of connectedness to the people that are there. You feel, in some ways, almost a spiritual feeling. You go somewhere where everybody has something like and in common, and you feel connected, and that's what man was supposed to do. Now, a Rolling Stones concert won't get you connected to God, But what it does is it takes advantage of a built-in desire to be connected to other people. And that's why people like it. That's why you see people acting like fools at football games, painting themselves green and wearing cheese on their head. At a rock concert, you know, holding up a lighter, everybody swaying in unison, you know. Suddenly somebody who's never been able to look another person in their life and say, I love you, is singing, uh, you know, lyrics uh, of a love song, you know. There is this born inside of us. And in the Older Testament is that God laid down a a strict, uh, but He wanted man to understand, you can return to me. There is a way for this to occur. 
It's what the Bible calls a prescribed way. But it's going to require you to do something. You need to be aware that the problem was never with me, God. It was with you. You need to be aware that from God is not God. It's us. He does not withdraw from us. It's us who withdraws from Him. Every parable that Jesus told had to do with the Father sending or seeking something from mankind. Never as a third-party abstract God who cared nothing about His creation. But the Older Testament laid down a framework in which man in their daily lives could become aware of their need for God. I one time began to calculate the Mosaic Law in my own life. And I don't know if I'm capable of raising enough animals because every day I would be carrying a goat or leading a lamb to a place to be slaughtered for my benefit. Because there were the free will offerings and then there were the compensatory offerings. Do you know if you so much as touched a grasshopper that had not six wings and, or six legs and wings, you were dirty? You know, my, my kid would never be clean. Never. <laughs> He's the next, next Jeff Corwin or Bear Grylls. This was all to speak a message. You can come close to me, but you cannot come very close yet. You and I were once intimate with each other, no division between us, and something's happened, and you need to get a resounding message. The problem was with you. And so you can come this close because I don't want you to perish. And if you don't have light from God, you're going to perish, but no closer. And can you imagine laboring under that kind of scenario? This would be a little bit like courtship, guys. Those of you that fell head over heels in love with some lady, and you began to pursue her. But, you know, maybe she'd only return your call once a week. You know, maybe she was uh, old-fashioned and expected you to be chivalrous. I know that's rare these days. And so she didn't return your calls too quickly as to not appear over-eager. And maybe the courtship lasted some time, and it built a level of anticipation. You were waiting for that day when you could just spend a day with them or an hour. You know, this used to occur in letters before cell phones and Internet and everything else. And what would happen is Matthew would have to write Cassidy's parents, you know, and they would have supervised visits. And then over time, they may, may get to spend a walk together, and it made the time cherished. Well, every year, was allowed to draw near to God, about as near as the foot of a mountain with God on top of it. And they had to have representatives speak to God on their behalf, almost like an arbitrator. I imagine that hurt. I imagine that was difficult. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. I want to show you a sense in which Israel often spoke about God. It would be Deuteronomy 32. Good girl. Who else is there? Y'all don't be scared to talk to me. It's funny. When we were in a living room, everybody talked to me all the time. We build a tiny stage uh, to be able to hide our musical stuff underneath, and all of a sudden it's intimidating. If we'd done this Jewish style, we would have dug a hole in the ground right here. The person who was speaking, both for the natural amplification of sound, needed to be lower than everybody so that it was like a natural amphitheater, and so that everybody understood if you dare or presume to speak or teach God's Word, you better be the most humble man in the building. 
in the West, we've got it absolutely wrong. We amplify our sound by whatever those are, PV speakers, JBL speakers, and we lift our pastors up, and we make them idols. Well, he can live like that because he's a pastor. But I, poor lowly congregation, I, I could never do that. Nothing's further from the truth in the Bible. We're all in the exact same position. In Deuteronomy 32, starting in the first verse, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. This is Moses. Uh, Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. They have acted corruptly towards Him. To their shame they are no longer His children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father, your Creator, who made you, informed you. When the Older Testament speaks about God, it tends to be in these terms. It tends to be in the terms of demonstrating because of sin, we're separated. And when the Bible in the Older Testament speaks of Him as Father, it is Father in the sense of you're the one that brought about our lives. So we owe you something for that. But you couldn't insert Daddy there. It wouldn't make much sense. It wouldn't feel right. Something that personal about this statement. Because all of mankind felt a separation from God. Forward with me. We we'll want to show you one other in Jeremiah 3. So you'll turn to the right in your Bible. Jeremiah was not a bullfrog. He was a Hebrew prophet. And unlike Jonah, he got it. Jeremiah 3. By the way, the nine times that uh, the Bible speaks about God as Father... Uh, all nine of them. One is in Deuteronomy. Two of them are in Psalms. Two of them are in Isaiah. Two of them are in Jeremiah. And one is in Malachi. Uh, I'm going to read you one out of Jeremiah so you can hear God's thoughts being displayed in this. In Jeremiah 3, starting in verse 11. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Uh, you ever received a backhanded compliment? Watch this. Wow. Matt, you're not as fat as you were. <laughs> Leaves you kind of going, hmm, do I say thank you or not? You know? <laughs> or certain emphasis in a sentence. You know, uh, you say, your hair looks nice today. So what do they mean by that? God has just done that to Israel. He's described Israel, which is two houses at this time because of a civil war. Americans were not the first to have one of those. And he says that one is faithless and the other is unfaithful. I don't know which I'd rather be, but God said one was better than the other. That's ugly, isn't it? The state of the relationship was ugly. The Lord said to faithless Israel, said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go proclaim or preach this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer. For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to the foreign gods under every spreading tree. 
If you have the ability to read Hebrew, and I don't, but I have some pretty fantastic study aids that help me, Scattered Your Favors has really an entirely different connotation in English than it does Hebrew. He's literally accusing Israel of having prostituted herself on every nice hill under every tree that made nice shade with the other gods of the world when he says that. I would say that's pretty serious rebellion. Verse 14, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. That's Jerusalem, and it also means the uh, mountain of the Lord's brightness. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. God is laying out a plan. He's saying, I know you have an ark that represents my presence. I know you are people who are supposed to represent my presence. But the truth is, you've been rebellious like all people have always been rebellious. So I'm going to take a representative few of you. And I'm also going to remove the ark and put my very presence in the city because I want to be married to my people. God is desiring a relationship. What we need to do is figure out what it takes to be compatible with God. What is it that He wants? A good clue is how we started. He called one unfaithful and the other faithless. If you were going to turn those around, what would you say? You would say faithful, right? And full of faith. Faithful and diligent. What does it mean to be faithful? A good English word for you to take this out of churchy mystery land is trust. He wants you to trust Him and act like you trust Him. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join with the house of Israel. He'll bring unity. God is always about unifying. Man is always about disunity and rebellion. That's why it feels good when you connect with other people on a common purpose. And together they will come from the northern land to the land I gave their forefathers as an inheritance. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. The picture that we're supposed to have of God is that He wanted not to be a father in the sense of just create something and then back off as the agnostics say. He wanted to be father in the sense of daddy. He wanted to teach man what was good and bad for man. He wanted to have a relationship based on their compatibility. In fact, he was able to relate to him. And somewhere along the way, because of our own rebellion, I've noticed something when my kids get good grades and I go to pick them up at school, they run to meet me at the car. First thing my son says is $10 for every A, $5 for a B. To which I reply, go see your mother. If they should happen to have, uh, in our schools they call it your clip moved. That's like a demerit. Had their clip moved, a lot longer to get to that car. Head way down, you know. And first thing out of their mouth is an excuse that has nothing to do with their own behavior. You know, not a lot changes from childhood to adulthood. When we're approaching God, when we feel like things are good, we're like, 
Oh, yeah! Lord, I'm your man of power for the hour. What would you like me to do? If you had a bad day, if you don't feel like you lived up to the ideals of the Christian faith, it's tail dragging behind you with sword of the Spirit back there with a bent tip and your shield of faith down around your ankles and you're looking through the ear hole of your helmet of salvation and it takes you a lot longer to get there. In fact, you feel like you'd like to punish yourself for a little while because somehow that will fix it. And some people punish themselves so much that they'll be out of church 20 years not realizing what would breathe life into their lives. I've been to some churches, though, and I understand. I've been into a few that sucked the life out of me when I walked in the door. You know, you've got to slide a mirror under people's nose to know if anybody is awake or alive. <laughs> Call the ambulance and they pull out ten people before they uh, find the dead guy. Right? I mean, I understand. It's rough. We've made a mockery of what God intended to be a powerful, loving, passionate relationship. We've reduced it to rules. Basically, if you put money in a plate, nobody cares what you do. Nobody cares whether you're experiencing God. In fact, you could say some churches have turned into fishers of funds rather than fishers of men. I didn't want to confuse the issue. I found a scripture in the Old Testament that said a king put a hole in a box and let people drop their offerings in it, so we put one in the back of the church. Don't pass anything. We also don't have rules for you. The Bible is our rule. If you see anybody in the church acting in a way that is inconsistent with the Bible because you love them, you show them. Right? That's not because we're trying to be some new wave church or contemporary. It's because we want our lives with God to be based on a relationship, not based on rules. You know anybody that got born again and immediately was told to cut their hair, throw away their music, follow this diet which included only certain kinds of liquids and, uh, dear God, if you happen to light something and draw air through it, then you're certainly going to hell? Yeah, well, of course. Because in the absence of a relationship, the church just builds more rules. And it's always been that way. And it's not that there's no benefit to rules. It's not. There are, there, there's a reason you tell your kids don't run with knives. You don't want people to get hurt. But if that's your only relationship with your children, they rebel against it 100% of the time. Hmm. Turn with me then to the ministry of Jesus. Let's look at John 1. Tell me when you're there. Sorry, that was a long ways to the right. But from here on out, I'm going to keep you pretty well in John. One of the things that I like about John, you all know I preach and teach a lot from John. I'm doing a foundation study on Monday nights where we cover every word of it. It's always been my favorite gospel. I can relate to John. John and his brother uh, at times were more aggressive than they should be. It earned them a nickname, Sons of Bawarnages. Sons of Thunder. He was also probably a good deal younger than the rest of the apostles. I can relate to that too. I was 18 when I began preaching. Because of that, he makes some pretty serious mistakes. But his long life, he's the only one that was not martyred. I mean, they tried. They boiled him in oil. They did a lot of ugly things to him, but they couldn't kill him. He was apparently a tough old bird by the end. By the end, he was not known as a son of thunder. He was known... It's the apostle of love. And I think in his life, what we really see demonstrated is the change of a man 
that is based on rules that says, if you do this to me, then I'm going to do that to you, that only knows God from a legalistic standpoint to a man who had a deep, abiding, intimate relationship with God so that he no longer wanted to lash out at anybody. He wanted to show mercy to people because he knew he was an object of mercy. I think I most identify with him for that reason, but he has the most unique letter that he's written. His account is different than all of the other three, almost as if it's a nice way to say I knew him a little differently than you guys did. And his nickname was the one Jesus loved. How about that? Jesus has a way of looking for the underdog in a group, the one that nobody else thinks will make it. I know in my own high school I would have been voted least likely to be born again. There's no question about that. After I got born again, I was walking around and my head must have been in the clouds. I don't know. I was so excited. I didn't, wasn't, didn't care about anything. I actually signed my finals and turned them in without, uh, I don't recommend this, by the way, without filling out even the multiple choice. Uh, I had a high enough grade point average where I was not all that concerned about it, and uh, I wanted to sit and read the Word. I had become consumed with it. Everybody thought I was in a cult. But a young lady was walking. Well, I was in the cult of Jesus, though, the real thing. As I was walking down the hall, a girl looked at me and she says, what is wrong with you? I said, what's wrong, sweetheart? Didn't you think I could be born again? She said, no. And walked off. It was a Christian school. God is looking for people that don't believe they can do it. And He wants to encourage them. That's the truth. Acts 17.26 says that He set certain boundaries in your life. He determined the places you would live and work. Steve thought he worked at BP... Because they hired him. He worked at BP because that's where God determined he would work. Until such time as God would release him to do something else. I've had a lot of jobs where I spent the whole time praying, Lord, release me to do something else. (laughs) If you think working for the British is hard, you should work for the French. That's another message. Actually, we ought not have that message, huh? So John describes the ministry... He describes the ministry of Jesus in this way. Pick up with me in the first chapter of John in the 14th verse. The Word became flesh. A word is an expression of your thought. When God wanted to express Himself, it was called His Word. He spoke. And when God was expressing His thought, He packaged it. Everything that is God's thought, His mind, His will, His emotions, in the man Jesus. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He whom I said, He who came after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, and boy was that good, and grace And truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. That verse starts off talking about no one has seen God. Nobody's laid eyes on Him. And it finishes up by saying, but His special Jesus who is at His side has made Him known. Which begs the question, are we talking about seeing with our eyes or are we talking about And this is much like the English expression. Hey, Steve, you see it? Do you see it? Oh, yeah, man, I get it. I know how to do it now. Good. He sees it. He gets it. Same thing in this Greek expression here. 
What we're talking about is nobody not only was able to lay eyes on God, but nobody was able to grasp the fullness of His character. And they couldn't because something stood between us. Something separated us from God. So God sent His side, half of Him if you will, to us so that He would be knowable, understandable, comprehensible. Have you ever felt like you just prayed and it bounced off the ceilings? <laughs> if you didn't say yes to that, then you're lying now and next time you pray it will bounce off the ceiling. We've all been there. I've been there more than I would like to be. And you have this thought, Lord, how? How do I, how do I hear from You? How do I get Your direction in my life? I was made to be, I, I understand I'm supposed to be connected to You, but how? Well, God sent part of Himself to us. Yeshua, Jesus. So that we would know how. That was Jesus' mission statement to reveal or make known the Father. They had known God as their Creator. They had known God as righteous and separate from them. In fact, I'll come back to this later. I said they could come close, but only so close. The way that the temple was set up where God's presence dwelt was that if you were a Gentile, you had to be way out here. If you were a woman, just a little bit closer. If you were uh, an average Jew, a little closer than that. A Levite, a little closer than that. A Levite who happened to be on priestly duty, well, you could get into a room just outside where God's presence was, but you couldn't go in or you would die. In fact, there was a curtain that they added to every year to separate God's presence from the people so that you would walk up and literally have a barrier between you and God. This is not all that unlike when man was thrown out of the garden, uh, an angel with a flaming sword, a cherubim, was placed right outside the garden to keep man from going in, showing because of transgression, you cannot get any closer than this. Jesus came to show us a way to get close to God, to be compatible with Him again. The Bible is His survey that you would take on eHarmony that shows you what His 29 dimensions of compatibility are. The problem is not with God. The question is, will we adjust to His prescribed way? Now what's neat, saints, the church will tell you you have to change everything about your life. In fact, you become this I think we can say dorky in church. Can we say dorky in church? Yes, we just did, twice. <laughs> you become this dorky, cookie-cutter mold. You know, your parts got to go a certain way. Your clothes have got to be a certain way. You only talk about certain subjects and never laugh or smile. The church tells you you have to change everything about yourself to be in contact with God. What we find in the Word is just the opposite. He uniquely designed you already. As different as all the people are in this room. Different countries, different ethnicities, different genders. We have all kinds of differences in here, and yet each of you are programmed in your very DNA to be in touch with Him. There's very little that has to change for you to be compatible with God. Jesus teaches us what that is. We have to admit that the way that we've gone on our own is not right. And we have to yearn for God's way and be willing to try to walk in it. He doesn't even require you to walk in it perfectly. 
He just requires you to hate the way you used to walk and try with all your heart to walk in a new way and then He promises to help. And then you feel this connectedness again. When Jesus gives His, or John gives us His mission statement, it shows up in the teaching, in the ministry of Jesus. It shows up everywhere. It's too many places for me to be able to tell you, but He's describing a new relationship with the Father. In the Older Testament, we knew Him as Creator God. In the Newer Testament, new terms start to pop up. Turn with me to John 2. We'll whip through some of these all in order in John. In John 2, starting in verse 12. It says, after this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples. They stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables Keep your finger there for a second and look up at me. Forget you're reading this in a holy ancient book. If I were going to tell you a story about a holy man from God, is this a story you would expect to find in the book? But Jesus is supposed to make God knowable to us. He's supposed to make God comprehensible, understandable to us. And people wear bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? All you have to do is look in the Word and you'll find out what He did. Why is he so upset that he would make a whip? Well, all of Israel is required to go to one place where the presence of God dwells. God wants them to come to him because he's teaching them the way back to him. And he said, because you're guilty, you have to come with an offering. You have to. So they didn't have a choice. And if you're traveling 80 miles from northern Israel to where Jerusalem is, You either had to bring with you your little goat or lamb or doves or whatever you were sacrificing the entire or you brought Paulo didn't take religious establishment. There's the same today. Turn on the TV set. You'll hear it. They will sell you anything you'll buy from them and lie to you the whole time. All in the name of Jesus. Didn't take the religious establishment long ago. You know what? Steve's got to carry that goat. He isn't going to do it. I mean, that's 100 miles. He's got a big family. He's got a lot to get there. I know what. I will set up a 7-Eleven right inside the temple of God where I can sell him a goat at a very favorable exchange rate, too. Because he doesn't have a choice, does he? He has to have one. That's like selling plywood in the middle of a hurricane for $1,000 a sheet. That's what they're doing. So what makes God angry? When somebody else lays a stumbling block in your way so that you can't come to Him without being extorted. Nothing makes God angry and it's the reason that John chose this first. And listen to the way that he says it. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? My father's. How dare you do this in my daddy's house? They didn't refer to God that way. None of them walked in and said, well, this is my father's house. To them, it was an institution that provided the opportunity for them to extort people. Now, what about the ones coming? They're Jews too. They just wanted to do whatever it took to be as close to God as God would allow. And somebody was making even that harder. You want to know what really ticks God off? 
when in His name people make it difficult for you to get into contact with Him. I repent and apologize right now for the whole church world. For everybody that ever told you if you didn't dress a certain way then He wouldn't receive you. For everybody that ever told you if you didn't have enough zeros on a check, you were unworthy. These, these, these concepts... I want you to see something else on our larger point though. He says, my Father's house. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Did you see how it was written about in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament it was, zeal for your house will consume me. Right? But when Jesus does it, it is my daddy's house. This is a fundamental shift in the way that human beings are looking at God. They saw the temple as the great Creator's house. Jesus saw it as my daddy's house, a place where I am welcome. See, God's presence was supposed to be inviting. And instead, because of rebellion, what people felt was a distance. They felt as if they were being driven from the presence of God rather than drawn to the presence of God. Saints, there's a message there for us. i got a lot more to tell you about it, but before we get there, there is a message there for us. When we meet people, do our lives invite them into the presence of God? Or does it hold them at a distance and say, you're not good enough? They know they're not good enough. Every human being does. That's why when we're left to our own devices, we numb ourselves or kill ourselves any way that we can. One God does it quickly, another does it over 40 years. But lost people are not happy people. They already know that. They need to be invited into the presence of God. The first thing that you see in Jesus' ministry is that He doesn't want anybody to take advantage of you. He doesn't want anybody to make it hard for you to get to Him. Turn a page. Be in John 4. Is this alright if I talk with you all a while? Y'all got a date? Got somewhere to go? In John 4, Jesus meets a, a Samaritan woman. And I don't have time to tell you all the background because I won't get where I want to go. But they have a very profound conversation. In the fourth chapter, starting in the 21st verse, it says, Jesus declared... Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship, we Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. The second thing that I want you to hear in Jesus' ministry while He's making the Father known is He does not want your robe and ritual. I love recited reading, especially when it's good reading. But that's because it's new to me. I never had to do it. I could no more stand up and just spit out the Apostles' Creed with no feeling or meaning than a man on the moon. If I'm going to read it, I'm going to embrace the text. I'm going to engage it. And it will mean something to me. Or I won't say it. God is not looking for people who simply go through the motions. When He says worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth, and I've preached hundreds of messages on this. And today I'm going to tell you something different. That didn't make the others wrong. That just makes God that big. You understand? It's like a man and a woman saying, I want you heart and soul. 
It's like saying, I don't just want the outside. I love you on the inside. It's like saying, I love everything about you. The Father is looking for people who will worship them with their whole being. He wants people who know and are willing to embrace Him on every level. But we still have a problem, don't we? We feel separated because of shame. Isn't that true? Jesus is revealing more and more of the Father as we walk through John. Turn to John 5. In John 5, pick up with me in the 16th verse. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted Him. When it says the Jews, it means the Jewish leadership, the Judean Jews. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work. My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill Him. Not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father. This was a new thing that had not been occurring for 1,600 years. The Jews believed that God was their Father in the sense that He created them as a people. Their Father in the sense that He gave them life but not their father in the personal sense. In fact, it makes Jewish people very uncomfortable when you talk about your personal relationship with God. Because God designed them as a community and a people, and they have a communal relationship with God. They say, our God, not my God. They say, we came out of Egypt, not I came out of Egypt. They did things as a nation and a community, and God designed it that way. But now we have a part of that nation, that community, who is illustrating a different relationship with God. said, you've only been coming this close, but now I'm talking about a step closer. Not just God as the one who birthed you as a nation, but your God as in your daddy. Somebody intimately familiar and working with you on a daily basis. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing. When somebody sees your kids acting just like you, what do they say? That's His Father's Son. Or, man, what a chip off the old block. Our behavior is reflective of who our Father is. At one point, Jesus looks at certain corrupt Jewish officials and says, your dad's the devil. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but all, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Here Jesus begins to address the problem that all of us feel when we are trying to draw near to God. You feel something separating you and it is guilt and shame. And Jesus is saying, if you will believe in my word, you will have crossed over from guilt into shame, guilt and shame into life, the abundant life that God wants. This was a term that the Jews were very familiar with, this crossing over. The reason is, both Deuteronomy 30 and Exodus describe 
fussing over. See, all of Israel once in a while would assemble and God would make them all get on one side of the camp and then you paid silver to the priesthood and you crossed over to the other side of the camp and that was those who had been redeemed. But to get redeemed, you had to pay a price. Now Jesus is looking at people and saying, don't be condemned. If you believe me, you've already crossed over. I'm paying your price. When Jesus reveals the ministry of the Father, it's not just that He doesn't want you uh, to be hindered in coming to Him. It's not just that He wants you heart and soul. It's that He's willing to pay a price for you. Whatever it takes to get you from where you are to where He is. That's a whole lot different than we usually feel about God, isn't it? We usually feel like we can't come near because of this and that. And One time when I was seven, when I was seven I stole the candy bar from a local store. I carried that on my conscience for years. I asked for forgiveness for that sin every night from the time I was about seven till I was 18. And the moment I was born again, the moment I was born again, I realized that I had done that, but it didn't feel like me because the price had been paid. I felt atoned for. I had confidence when I prayed for the first time. I knew that God was not trying to punish me for something I did when I was seven or what I had done seven minutes before that. He was paying a price for me to come to Him because what He wants most is that deep, fulfilling relationship with us. It's why we were created. That's good news, isn't it? In John 6, Jesus says that my Father gave you fresh bread from heaven. God gives you what you need to nourish your life. The problem is that people are looking at the fresh bread from heaven going, where is it? I don't understand. And Jesus says, my words are spirit and they're truth. They are the life. We often don't know what will feed us and bring us closer to God. That's why we must read His Word and must surround our lives by people who do. You have to. It doesn't come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is to run and hide and exclude ourselves. That's what comes naturally. Turn with me to Matthew 6. I want to cover a very familiar scripture and then I'm going to wrap things up. That doesn't mean Matthew is the last one I read. Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, we have a pretty darn familiar scenario. Jesus is discoursing on prayer. This verse of the 6th chapter. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, your close personal space. Close the door and pray to your Father. This is a new fundamental change in relationship. You don't have to see God as a distant deity but you can see Him like going into a room to talk to your own dad who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
Doesn't that of not just an all-knowing God, which is what the theologians say, but a personally connected God? He's watching your He knows when your heart's broken because a child's not in with you. When you don't have enough money to pay. When somebody said something when God to punish everybody. Looking to strike somebody down. He's trying to figure out how you over from death to life because it's entirely different God that most of us grow up. And I'll tell you what else. Most of the reasons that we struggle with relationships with our own fathers is because the devil is trying to muddy the waters so that you cannot see what God is like. When I preach in larger groups and I say God is like your father, you can see people cringe because their daddy didn't act like God. The devil's work to destroy that relationship so we don't see what we're supposed to see. A little mercy all the way around. When you're a daddy, you find out it's not such an easy job. Jesus goes on to the Catholic brothers call the Our Father. Sometimes call it the Lord's Prayer. Understand the difference. God, today we want our bread. And saying, bread. There is a shift occurring in relationship. And that shift's an important one. I don't have time to give you all of the other scriptures, but I do want you to understand this, and you can write down a few. In John 10, 22-38, this new relationship is described in this way. They're upset with Jesus because He seems to be calling God His equal. And they say, you're a mere man. How can a mere man be equal with God? He said, because I do that He does. He said, what miracle that I've done are you going to stone me for? If you don't believe me, at least believe the miracles. When we act like God, He is not ashamed to call us His children. And what does it mean to act like God? Love people. Show people mercy. In John 14, 23-24, He says that if you obey the words of Jesus, the Father would come make His home with you. If you had always thought about God in a temple behind a curtain you couldn't go through, and now we're talking about listening to what Jesus said, put God from out there in my home? This is a different kind of relationship. In John sixteen, twenty three through twenty eight, he says, In that day you can ask whatever you want in my name. I'm not saying I'm going to ask the Father for you. No, it's better than that. He loves you and will do for you what you've asked because you believe in my name. This is a different direct access kind of relationship. Into John 17. We are going to close here soon, but you need to know this. Besides, there's nobody to beat to Luby's today anyway. You can give me a couple more minutes. I might hear something that you get your whole life long. John 17, the sixth verse, Jesus is in the last hours of his life. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. He's completed his mission. He's shown them what God is like. I have revealed you, Father, to them. Then we move to John 18, and one last picture I want to give you of what God is like occurs in the very last act before Jesus is crucified. John 18, starting in verse 1. When they had finished praying, Jesus left with His disciples, and they crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and He and His disciples 
in Olive Grove with Gethsemane. It means the olive press. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, weapons. Speaks as to their intent. This is not a friendly meeting. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him and asked, Who do you want? I want you to understand this. Look in here. We'll show you spatially. If the Mount of Olives which at the foot of it has Gethsemane, the olive press is right here, then right here would be the Kidron Valley. Okay, Jesus and his disciples leave Jerusalem. They cross over the Kidron Valley, which is a big fissure in the earth. By the way, hell is at one end of it. It's called Gehenna. That's what he said was like hell. Now he sees soldiers coming and he is in the garden with his disciples. He puts himself between the soldiers and his disciples. He goes out to meet them. There's a reason for this. If there is harm to be taken, God always steps in front of you. When Israel came out of Egypt, Pharaoh was pushing them from the backside. The Red Sea was squeezing them from the other side. So God came down in a pillar of fire and positioned Himself between Pharaoh and the Israelites. One of Jesus' last acts on earth was to put Himself in harm's way for your benefit. And this is before the crucifixion. Now hear what happens. Who is it you want? He already knew. He's just looking for a chance to do something. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am He. I think one of the larger proofs in the Bible that although this text came down to us in Greek, Jesus spoke Hebrew, comes from what happens next. I am He, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with Him. When He said, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. When you say, I am, in Hebrew, it is the name of God. It is Yahweh. And at the mere mention of Yahweh's name, they all fell down because the glory of God is like a weight and it pressed them to the ground. When you're in trouble, God will put Himself between you and the trouble. Here He shows with just the mention of His name, He has the ability to knock down any trouble that you face. He wanted us to understand that He submitted to what was going to happen because a price needed to be paid, not because He couldn't do anything about it. When you face a problem, God moves between you and the problem. And if you have to still endure the problem, it's only because He intends to achieve some greater purpose. He's more than capable of knocking down the problem. If we'll view things that way, we won't feel mistreated by God. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I am He, Jesus answered. If you are looking for Me, then let these men go. Do you understand where his heart is? He goes out, rushes headlong into a mob with Roman soldiers, soldiers from the temple, Pharisees, and chief priest servant. And he goes out knowing that they're going to mistreat him, but rushes to meet them to ensure that none of his disciples who he's placed behind him are harmed. Is that not like a daddy? Protecting his kids? Of course it is. These days I am a pretty passive individual. But if a dog or something's approaching on the street, baring its teeth, I'll put myself between my kids and it. This is the heart of God. And the reason this is recorded this way is so that we'll know, but there's one more event you just got to hear. I told you I'm 
he, Jesus answered, if you're looking for then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost what you gave me. A father doesn't want to lose anybody. Then Simon Peter had a sword, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. This high priest's servant, by the way, his name's Malchus. You find that from other scriptural texts. And servant's not quite the right word. It's more like personal assistant. Uh, he carried great authority because he spoke for the high priest. He carried great authority because, kind of like uh, a personal assistant might have a stamp with uh, Donald Trump's signature on it, it was like that. He was the representative of the high priest. It says that Peter drew a sword and cut off his right ear and that his name was Malchus. Case, would you stand up? I want you to understand something. We don't know for sure that Peter was right-handed. But I want you to get this picture. If Peter is right-handed, like most of the population, and he draws his sword to cut off Malchus's right ear, he has to draw his sword and come around his head without hitting this part of his head and lop off his ear. Would it not be arguable that if he could do that, he could cut off his head pretty easily? He evidently didn't intend to cut off his head. He intended very accurately to cut off his ear. You can sit down. I want him to see that. There's a reason for this. About 40 years before Jesus' ministry, there's a guy named Antagonus. And Antagonus in 40 B.C. was running for the office of high priest. And he had a challenger. Not all that different than our presidential race now. It just so happens that Hyrcanus II, who was his challenger, was a strong challenger. And it looked like it was going to be a close race for high priest, and Antagonus wanted to be the high priest. Well, God had these requirements. In Leviticus 21, uh, and in Leviticus 8, and in Leviticus 14, He teaches us something. Nobody can serve as a high priest who doesn't have all their body parts. Yeah, I would read it to you, but it would make you blush. He goes on in Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 14 to say, if you're a high priest, I want you to anoint the lobe of your right ear because it needs to be redeemed so that you can hear from God. Well, the reason antagonists set out to hurt Hyrcanus in 40 B.C. was he cut off his right ear because it disqualified him from being a priest. All the Jews understood this. An antagonist became the high priest. Herod the Great, who died around 4 B.C., also did this to a couple of rivals. These are all people prior to Jesus. And Joseph, Josephus wrote and told us that it happened again in the first century several times. Peter reached out his sword to cut off this man's ear to show that he was disqualified to hold the position that he held. He wanted to shame him. He wanted to see, you're an Jesus and Jesus is righteous and you're not. Be interesting. Turn with me to Luke. This is the second to last scripture I'll read you. In Luke 22, the same story just doesn't mention some names. Verse 51. But Jesus answered, No more of this. That's what He said to Peter. And He touched the man's ear and healed him. 
the last miracle that Jesus does prior to being crucified is somebody is coming to drag him away to be crucified and one of his disciples comes to defend Jesus, cuts off the man's ear to show he's disqualified, this person is worthless, a disgusting dog like a Gentile. Jesus looks at his disciple and said, no more. And he received the man's ear. He made him... I want to say that to you because the heart of a father... You know, the only people that are sad on a day a serial killer gets the electric chair are his parents. And the heart of the father is that none of you be disqualified. The heart of a father is even if you deserve it, even if others can prove you guilty of sin. He wants no more of this. He wants to see you qualified. He wants to see you restored because you were made to be in right relationship with Him. If it were me, I'd have cut Malchus's head off and used it as a soccer ball. Peter wanted him to endure a life of shame for his behavior. Jesus wanted him to endure a life restored so that he could know God as his Father. Isn't that an amazing kind of love? On Father's Day, it's worth thinking about. By the way, Mark 15:38 says that when Jesus cried out his last, that curtain that was in the temple that showed everybody they were separate, tore completely in two, and he makes it a point to say, from the top down, as if God reached down and tore it from the sky downward. There is no division between God and man now if you're only willing to be obedient to Jesus. He wanted us to know we have access to Him. When you read Mark 15:38, you can't escape the immediate reaction. There's a centurion standing there, one who had actually participated in the crucifixion. And he said, Surely this man was the Son of God because he felt the change in the relationship immediately. There was now access to God where before he had only felt dirty. He just got through nailing Jesus to a tree. I'm going to read to you and you don't have to read it. You just listen to me. It's a scripture in Hebrews about that curtain. And with it, we'll close. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, Did you get that? No longer ashamed crawling to God. Confidence because somebody paid for you to cross over. Since we have confidence to enter into the most holy place, not the foot of the mountain, not the outer doors of the temple, right up into the lap of your daddy God. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. When God tore that curtain, it's as if Jesus' body was literally being torn. Jesus housed the presence of God. That building housed the presence of God. And both were torn saying, it's free for everybody if you will just try to come back to Him. I could read the rest, but I don't think I need to. I want to ask you, what then hinders you? It's Father's Day. Maybe your daddy was a worthless human being. He was part of the human race. It's all the same disease stock. If you want to be like your Father in Heaven, number one, forgive Him. 
it will heal you. Harboring bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Secondly, we have a new relationship with our God. He is the daddy that we should have always had. And we have a chance to be like Him. And every generation after us can experience that. But if you want to be most like Him, you don't disqualify other people. You don't leave their ears laying on the ground, so to speak. You do whatever you can to repair the world. Thanks, we're without excuse. And we're without hindrance. And we're without reason not to. All we have to do is worship Him with all our heart and soul. In your bulletin, there are other scriptures you can read, but one of my favorites that I didn't put there, it's in the same context, says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. If you would just let Him lead and give up your own way, He'll call you His child and you can call Him Father. And it's really that simple. Stand to your feet and we'll pray.